Welcome to the Super Motion Podcast. This series follows a group of creatives making a short film using Unreal Engine 5. Along the way, they talk to the best filmmakers and creatives to learn from them and get feedback on their own film. In this episode, the team interviews Haz, the co-founder of Hasimation and director of a new feature-length animation shot in Unreal Engine. The team find out about Haz's career in VFX and learn about his unique approach to making and funding his first feature-length animation in Unreal called Riff. Later in the interview, the conversation turns to Midjourney. Plus, there's lots of insights into making a movie, pitching it, making a game, getting funding, and generally being awesome. Let's do this. Haz, hi. Hey. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Great to, to have you on. Um, I saw you talk at the Summer of Unreal. I think you were showing us some stuff that was, I re- distinctly remember, a, like, you know, to please don't record this, I think, at one point, wasn't it? Oh, was yeah. Yeah, I was showing, I think, a really early footage, and it's like work in progress footage of Rift, which we're now, which we're finished now, by the way. We're in picture post in terms of audio post. But yeah, I remember showing that. Because, like, you know, when you're, the, when you're the only producer, well, no, there's two producers, me and my business partner, Paul, but we're the only producers, and we are the main financiers on it. There isn't this crazy embargo. And for us, we really wanted to kind of flip the way movies are being made. I mean, the fact that we're doing it in a game engine already, like, holy shit, we're doing it in one unconventional way. But also yeah, the yeah. way we kind of have early access and, you know, kind of very similar to video games where you kind of show stuff and kind of build up your audience through the way the movie's being made. We felt that could be a really interesting way of doing it. I, I just love sharing, right? So why not do it during the production? So by the time the film's finished, and we announced, and it's going to be a big press release coming out probably end of this week or maybe next week on an Oscar-credited festival. And the trailers we're going to drop as well to show. Then there's already like a build-up for the last two years. People are like, oh, this is a project we've been seeing snippets of. And, oh, wow. Looks so much more polished now. Yeah. So as you know, I've come out of working in tech for like nearly 10 years. Yeah. The last big job I was doing was at MPC Film. So yeah. I was making tech and stuff there. And I was there when they were doing The Lion King. And I got to, part of my job was like, go and talk to like everybody in across production and creative. It was just on Wardour bit... Street. Is that the NPC yeah, office on Wardour, Wardour Street? Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's a great place to work. Really cool, you know, and being there when The Lion King was done, you got to see yeah. the, the actual physical impact on people. Yeah. I used to work at NPC. I started my career in NPC. Yeah, I started, I started as a roto artist. I worked on like Sweeney Todd, the Harry Potter films. Um, 10,000 BC, kind of worked more. I then became a compositor and then you kind of just float around Soho until you become a visual effects producer or something. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but yeah, MPC, man. Yeah, the shower room. Um, the shower then, room, yeah. Yeah, It's yeah, not actually the, the a basement. shower in there. Don't worry. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people start their careers at MPC, man. Maybe we can start with your... Um, background first of all so you mentioned mpc i'm a filmmaker and a game developer and um, i'm currently in production well in post-production on an animated feature film called riff created entirely in unreal engine my background originally started it's going to show my age now but like playstation one playstation two i was doing cinematics for that um while i was still at university so i went to university called city university um central london I did a course for media communication. And then, you know, you do like what these people call a sandwich course, they call it. Oh, that was kind of weird. And you do like a free year you know, learning and one year placement at an industry. A lot of my friends were working in banking or going to work at Oracle. And it was one of those mixed media courses. So there was like, you know, work at Bloomberg, BBC. 
I wanted to go make freaking games, right? And you can imagine my, at the time, the lecturer's face was like, what? Like, we don't have any connections there. But if you go off and find a company, then sure, go for it. And I did that. I sent my show roll to it. Like, you know, I was doing stuff at home, like, you know, working in free, uh, 3D Studio R4, um, you know, doing, <laughs> doing stuff in Flash and, you know, yeah. Macromedia <laughs> yeah. Direct. I don't remember Macromedia, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and making those really cool Flash games. And yeah, I mean, the art was atrocious, you know. But the point is, you know, I've got loads of rejections from loads of companies. You know, I would like read Edge magazine. And at the back of Edge magazine, you see all the games companies at home. You just send your stuff in. And one came back and uh, just wanted to meet me. A company called Davis Studios. No longer there, unfortunately. But they, you know, they were based in Camden. And this is a time where I think Cygnosis were nearby as well. And oh, wow, um, yeah. Yeah, and they interviewed me. And I remember like the, the, the art lead there, um, Kevin Wafer, who's a really good friend of mine now. And, um, Kevin's like, look, man, your work isn't like amazing, like hiring standard, but I love your approach in making stuff. And I feel like if we put you and surround you with experienced people, you may have a chance. So I did like a, a couple, like three months, like work placement, loved it. And apparently I was doing okay. And they said, look, you should stay on and actually just work on the other in-game cinematics. This is back in the day. This is like your textures are like 30D by 30D tiled, right? <laughs> yeah. And you have to make some at a super low poly. Yeah. Um, I think that's where my guerrilla filmmaking skills came from, where you have like literally nothing, but you got to make something big. I think that's where that came from. But and then um, when it came to like going back to uni, you can imagine, I'm like, I don't want to go back to uni. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I've got a job. And I remember like the owner of the company, Daniel Bobroff, he was like, look, man, you, you know, you've got a job here for sure. Like, you know, we love you. What you can work on our other games. We've got Motocross Mania and all of those games we're working on at the time. But here's, here's a bit of advice. Um, you should always be in the habit of like, when you start something, finish it. And he was referring to my uni degree. And I'm like, you know what? That's a good point. And I, I still stick with those principles today. I finished the degree. I still work part-time when I was doing a the degree. They gave me like a part-time job. I quit my Tesco's job. And um, yeah, and it was that mentality, like flash forward, like even like becoming a, you know, visual effects supervisor and so on. So, so basically my career was video games because uh, I couldn't get into movies back then. You had to like be a runner or an assistant or a flame up or something in Soho back in those days. There wasn't like education material out there as much. There wasn't like an escape studios or those places. Now every university is teaching the stuff. It's amazing. But back then there was nothing. You know, it's very niche to be in visual effects, right? All you had to was read Cinefix magazines. That was about it really got oh, one day. <laughs> and um, so I went, I, went the, I went the video game route. But the thing is though, yeah, I did that for several years. And I think I ended up working at Codemasters over in oh, Warwickshire. Wow. Worked on Colin McRae yeah. Rally. And I was just simulating like, movie making techniques like cameras and cinematics but all in game and i got to a point i'm like you know what man i'm really faking the way i'm my film career here because i'm doing it in a game back then like you know little did we know game engines were gonna like rule the filmmaking world but back then it was so separated like oh you know if you work in games you work in games we're the big boys we, we make movies so i you know i was getting paid really well at codemasters doing cinematics and then eventually i got um, a gig at mpc but they they looked at my showreel and they were like look, man, like, what is it you want to do in film? I'm like, I can do it all. I can do cameras, lights. Yeah, yeah but you know, when you work in a movie, it's compartmentalized. Yeah. So I decided to become a compositor because I, I love photography and I love the idea of being the person that can make or break the shot, right? It doesn't matter how amazing your CG is. <laughs> if you don't comp that shot well yeah. in the shot, it's going to be poo, right? Yeah. So um, I did that. And then from there, so I worked as a rotor. It's an MPC work in 10,000 BC and the Ronald Emmerich film, um, Sweeney Todd, one of the Harry Potters. And then I became a composer. And then I left. Because the thing about Soho, you just you have to freelance in order to 
move up yeah. in a way. That's what I found. Here, here's the thing that I quickly learned in my visual effects career is working at a big studio, you can hone in a particular craft really well. In my case, you know, I started off as a roto artist. I became like a freaking awesome roto artist, but yeah. I didn't want to just do roto. I wanted to make movies, but I knew that was going to be my route. So I wanted to become a compositor. Um, and, you know, at those big studios, you get given a shot or a task to work. So like, you know, you could be building a tree just for that shot. And then there's 20 other talented artists that are responsible for that one shot, which is fine. But then when I left NPC, I went to work for other small, I went to Glassworks, I went to Partizan, Passion Pictures. Um, you know, one of the companies that I really still hold dear to my heart is Jellyfish Pictures, where I went to work there and I worked on a, a show called American Story of Us. And I was a nuke compositor. And, right. um, working at Jellyfish at the time, Jellyfish is a big company now, but mm. it's huge, right? 200 plus people. But back then it was like 15, 20 of us in, in Margaret street. And, um, I remember like you, you literally have to do everything. You're comping, you're doing a bit of CG, you do everything mm. to make it work. And I loved working at those boutique places because it's quite intimate. And the fact that you could ask someone next to you to help, you don't have to go through this whole process of like booking a meeting and so on. Um, and I just felt that I was able to kind of like explore in a very less risk way. Uh, whereas I found at bigger studios, not naming any, but bigger studios, like you could do like a crappy shot. It gets reviewed in dailies and they just pass it to someone else. Right. So you don't, you mm. can really hide. And it became really apparent when I became a VFX supervisor and I was hiring artists and I was at Jellyfish hiring artists and, um, we were getting compositors in and we found that it was really hard to hire composite that came from big movies because they had amazing credits. But when you say, okay, here's a shot, um, you'd have to rotone track it and comp it. They're like, oh, no, no, I need a tracking artist. I need yeah. a track. I need a roto artist. I'm yeah. just going to comp the thing. We're like, oh, not in this studio, buddy. You own the scene. So that I realized like the biggest advice I'll give people like today, you don't really, I mean, again, there's no right or wrong way. If yeah, you want to work yeah. at a big studio, please do. You know, that's, you learn lots from there. You know, for me, I learned, the thing that I learned working at a place at MPC um, was the fact that you got to understand how structure works. You got to understand yes. how pipelines work yeah. for a biggest company and how hundreds and hundreds of people are responsible for one sequence and how communication is key. So that's yeah. a big takeaway I took from working at a big studio for sure. I, I feel, I think it's, it's, un, it's unfair at the moment to see, I saw people piling into the whole Marvel um, oh, Marvel yes. treat people really badly, and and it, to me, it's there are certain jobs in the world where more is required of you, and there are crunch time moments like that. I think that that goes for whether you're an ambulance driver, a sports person, sure. or you work in VFX. There's just some jobs that have a crunch where it comes first, like it, the film yeah. needs to be delivered. It just it has to happen, and for there's sure. uh, within that. Yes, it can be brutal, but I for me. I think some people thrive on it and some people like their nervous system just isn't built. Yeah. For it. And unfortunately yeah. you don't know where your line is until you try and kind of cross it in terms of whether that's hours per week or just the pressure on it. And for some people, yeah. a lot of people go into film because they're really passionate about it. But then the challenge is you're so passionate about it. It means so much to you that that can also create a pressure 100%. to want it to be really good and like, Oh, this is 100%. really important. And actually, maybe the people who aren't so sort of impressed by it all, 
maybe it's easier for them people who just see it as a project or people I yeah know. i mean I, I fell in that trap i mean when i was working as even as a roto artist i was so passionate getting that shot done because you know i mean like the biggest for me my vision effects career as you know before i became a vfx supervisor when i was a composer i got to work on this amazing movie called the dark knight and my job was to go and do wow. post viz and there wasn't post viz at the time and uh, i remember getting that job and and they asked me, can you build some macro scripts in Shake in order for us to do some compression thing that allows us to comp in HD, but output in like 2K or 4K, I think it was at the right. time, because obviously the whole IMAX thing. And um, I had no friggin' idea how to create macros, but I knew that I was the only composite in this team. I'm like, I'm going to go figure this shit out. I, I have to figure this out. And then you kind of put that pressure on you. And now looking back, I'm like, maybe I should just like say, look, I can't do it, but let me have a go. Or maybe not put so much pressure on it and just really ask around. At the, at the same time, if I didn't put that pressure on me, I don't think I would have achieved as much as I would have. You know, sometimes when you're, when you're thrown into a small box and you've got to figure out like, mm. you know, your constraints. If I had like a team of programs at my disposal, I'd be like, yeah, well, you know, we'll figure it out. But because it was just me and we had to deliver these dailies and we, there wasn't no macro scripts in shake and I was the only compa, you know, that pressure allowed me to push myself and excel myself further. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a balance. And you're right. You know, not everyone. Everyone's different. Everyone's built differently, right? So, yeah. Roto is is near is near to the beginning. Like, it's in the early stages of a workflow yeah. pipeline. Then you went to comp, which is literally yes. the furthest <laughs> from the story iterative. It's the end sure. of the pipeline. Yeah. So you can look at every shot and go, I did that. I did that. I did that. <laughs> I think I think personally, I think as an artist, I think there was that bit of like selfishness in there, like that I wanted to own the sequence or own the shot. Yeah. But you know, it really it I think the education of what you mentioned about the whole Marvel thing and do not really know what goes behind the scenes. You don't really know that if you're a composite or an artist because you're yeah. kind of like on the front lines in terms of like you receive the plates and the yeah. shots and the brief and yeah. you get given this deadline from your coordinator or your VFX producer, right? Yeah. It's only when I became a VFX supervisor and I started working on set on some of those like the movies and TV shows, even commercials as well. And you start to see a lot of the internal politics that's going on where a studio would just turn up on a day and say, listen, we need these trailer shots. And everyone's like, but we haven't shot it yet. Yeah, you just have to change your shooting schedule. And as a BFX supervisor, you're seeing all of it because you're right next to the director or right next to the first AD. And I really started to understand, oh my God, that there is a lot of pressure on the filmmakers sometimes. And I've ever seen directors used to shout, and I'm like, why are you shouting for? And then the old VFX supervisors that like, being really pressured. Because like when I was a composer, I'm like, VFX supervisors, they have it easy, man. They don't do any comp. They're just walking around, you know, giving ideas. And then you when until you become one, you're like, oh my God, the pressure is on you because Whatever is being shot visual effects material, if you come back without that clean plate or that, that tracking data, your VFX team is gonna like they're gonna hate you internally or maybe even verbally. But and, do you remember? then you've got a you've got a balance. What was the most difficult conversation you had on set? How do you get someone to listen to you? You know, if you're a young guy, you're you know a VFX supervisor. People don't understand what VFX is. So oh they... god, oh man. The, I mean, it was back then. I mean, now it's a little bit easier from what I understand. But back then, like, yeah, you, you turn up your chrome ball or your half chrome ball, half gray, uh, a bunch of tracking markers and, and you know, distometer for, for measuring the, the distance and stuff. And you're trying to get time to capture that stuff. It's a visual effects heavy show. There's green screen everywhere. So clearly a VFX supervisor is needed. But at the time, they're like, look, we're going to make our day. Like you VFX guys just have to figure it out. And you're like, yeah, but I need time to talk to the camera team so I can do lens grid. I need, you know, when can I do that? And then when you start to quickly realize that maybe the VFX supervisor shouldn't be hanging out too much with the directors or the producers, 
but mainly the first AD is the person that you should be best buddies with on set. And you quickly learn that from day one. And then so, you know, I would get in really early. I don't need to turn up until like maybe 10 a.m. or something, but I'll turn up at 6 a.m. when there's hardly anyone around, just the first AD doing like the, the set walkthrough. And I'm like, say, listen, these are the bunch of the visual effects shots we're doing. I've just read this script breakdown. And, you know, I see these shots here. It's, there's a lot of movement. And in the script, there's a dragon behind it, you know, for this conversation's sake. But you're not putting in green screen, so there's going to be rotor. I need track. And then you kind of run it through. But you have to do it in a way that isn't technical because the first AD, he or she has got a million things going on on their minds. VFX is probably the last thing on their mind, right? So you have to do it in a way that you get all the material you want. At the same time, you're not being disruptive to the first AD in order to do their job. And then, you know, on, on like a few days later, the first day is, hey, Haz, do you still need tracking? There's a, like a 20-minute gap here because we have to reset or something. Then you go in. Now they're starting to think about what you want because you brought 100%. it to them in a way that they 100%. need to think about it, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. If, you, if I go back to the studio, I say, oh, God, sorry, guys, I didn't do any tracking data or I didn't, yeah, I, I didn't like do a crime ball because like, you know, there wasn't any time or... That's understandable, but your VFX artists yeah, that are not VFX supervisors or haven't been on set, they're just like, dude, seriously, man, like, how am I going to accomplish it? Or the CG artists, like, how am I going to light it? It's tough, dude. And the, th- the thing is, that the higher you get onto the management chain, and then I became a VFX producer. Yeah. And a VFX producer, like, you so are that's like. studio side, no? It was studio side, then became client side. Right. Um, I then end up doing a gig for Lionsgate, where this is great because I got hired to read scripts, break them down, like, visual effects wise. Oh, cool. And just, give a cost a rough estimate oh, yeah, and they'll yeah. decide whether this movie is going to be like worth doing or not and i think some of my some of my stuff end up making movies not happening because of that but you really got to understand from a vfx producer point of view and i got a job as a vfx producer working at um prime focus and um i got, I got hired as head of vfx and became a vfx supervisor um and then became a vfx producer because one day i was sitting there and um the coordinator who was just bidding we're just putting random numbers that person no fault of theirs. They were just told to put numbers. Yeah. And they have no idea. They're like, oh, it's going to be half a day for a roto. Oh, I'm like, have no. you seen the shot? There's hair. <laughs> there's wind. There's camera moving in 360. How did, I mean, how did you get half a day? They're like, oh, I just assume. I'm like, you know what? Try going to the, to the lead artist. Just ask them how long yeah, it takes. Just, take. just have a check. And I realized, I remember sitting there just putting numbers myself. And then the next time I'm like, yeah, I just did the bid. They're like, oh, you're now the VFX producer. I'm like, what? That was an eye-opener for me because, you know, being a VFX supervisor is technical and creative, right? Yeah. In terms of problem solving. Yeah. Being a VFX producer, there's an element of that, but you rely on the VFX suit. There is problem solving in numbers. And I mean, numbers from a budgetary point of view and numbers from a schedule point of view. And usually we have this amount of money and this amount of schedule, but we have this big vision and we already promised that it has to do this. And, you know, so you really understand like how to navigate around the budget. How do you make good use of tax credits in countries? And, you know, even sort of like visual effects of vendors that we end up using outside of the UK, you know, we picked a lot of Canadians because of the tax credits and so on. Um, even second unit shoots, we took place in certain places that we knew we could, we could utilize that. And all of a sudden, my whole edu- my whole film school, because I didn't go to film school, right? So my film school started literally from Roto to VFX producer. I saw the entire scope of how movies are made. To see that whole scope, to have worked on that final thing, to seen it from the beginning to end, yeah. and then to come full circle with a game engine. Um, <laughs> when, what, was the, what was the moment for you between that kind of MPC doing that, reaching a, a, you know, a peak in your career there, definitely, 
Yeah. Where did where did all of this start sure. to come back again that you thought? Um, right. Okay. Well, basically, while I was working in visual effects, because I've always wanted to be a filmmaker, like I said at the start, like that was my always my end goal. But obviously, I did the video game route and the visual effects route. But like, you know, while I was a VFX supervisor, I was making short films like we got time. So I decided to make a bunch of short films. One of them kind of went viral, this, this short film called Project Kronos, which is a fake documentary about a brain being put into a ball. And I made a documentary because at the time I was a VFX supervising BBC documentary, Discovery documentary. I spent a lot of time in the edit bays with the editors. I was in documentary mode, but also loved science fiction. So I kind of put the two together. And also being a compositor, I knew I could do most of the, in fact, all the effects myself in Adobe Premiere and After Effects on a, on a laptop. The film used like 99% NASA footage. I would like replace the space shuttle with my own CG rocket. I'll take the smoke from the Saturn V launch and put it on this shot because I didn't want to simulate Houdini smoke. And it was a pure compassion project. Released and oh yeah, hired a bunch of actor friends that I met at festivals and stuff and to, to, to come, you know, to like be fake scientists. And so one of them is actually my good friend, Victor Perez, who's his like legendary oh, yeah, Victor's color scientist. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's well, Victor's one of my good friends. He's a, he's amazing like a bro. Guy. And he actually started my short film. He just turned up and said, like, hey, do you want me to help? I'm like, hey, um, could you just do what, because he does these amazing like conferences and, and keynotes and he's got this really cool like, energy about him. I'm like, yeah, dude, yeah, just yeah. do that, but just read that. He was like, okay, for you, I will, but I don't usually do this. And he was amazing. He just, in my opinion, he stole the show. And, um, <laughs> that, yeah. Totally. I don't think he's ever going to do me a favor again now when it comes <laughs> to film, filmmaking. But um, but yeah, and the film ended up getting a Vimeo staff pick. This is like 2000 and, I think it's 2012, 2013. Got a Vimeo staff pick. And then I got approached by a bunch of Hollywood agents, Hollywood managers. And it was during that time when, you know, you had people like Gareth Edwards making movies like Monsters. You had Neil Blomkamp with District 9. There was a whole wave of visual effects artists turned filmmakers putting their stuff on Vimeo. And they're getting like staff picks and then Hollywood were picking them up. And I was oh, wow. in that yeah. batch. So, yeah, at that point, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to LA. And I got signed to a manager called Scott Glassgold from Ground Control. And it was amazing. I learned so much. I got a writing deal. But then around 2015, I'm like, there's something wrong with this picture. And the thing that was wrong with that, that I was still working in visual effects, but I was writing like for these Hollywood studios, but a lot of it was on spec because you're an untried filmmaker. And I remember speaking to my manager, my agent at the time, and I'm like, what do I have to do to get a movie made, man? And they're like, oh, man, you know, it's tough. You know, you just have to make something and shout from the top of the rooftop or, or you just got to get that break or something like that. It was a bit heartbreaking because I'm like, oh my God, I thought I'd made it, like, you know, getting signed. And 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 the thing that you quickly learn in Hollywood is you can fade out if you don't keep making content, right? Do you mean that there was open calls being thrown around to say, we want a three-part series on a da-da-da-da-da with, with you know, a lead? Or is, yeah. Is... I mean, for, for me, when I wrote, I wrote a project for Paramount, um, Department of Anthology for Attack, and there was a bunch of other directors, um, I got paid something like, 10,000 US dollars. Which for me at the time, I'm like, holy shit, I'm a fucking working writer. But like, no, it's not. And it's something I just wrote, you know, in your spare time in order to try and get the project sold. And it's the whole thing about Hollywood where you just run around the script trying to get stuff sold. But the great thing, even though I wasn't like getting movies made, I was like in development stuff, the great thing was I got to meet a lot of studios. I got meetings. And then, you know, thank you to my manager at the time, Scott Glasgow. You know, like I was meeting people like, you know, people at Fox and people at Universal, even like people at Blumhouse and all those people. So 2015, I am still visual effects producing at a company called Lex Hag, working on a show called Poldot. And um, Dan Marbrook, my boss at the time, um, head of production, 
He's like, when are you going to make a film, man? I'm like, I don't know, but I need to make a freaking film. And then I decided, you know what? I had some money saved up like to like to buy a house at the time. You know, it's going there. And yeah. I'm like, make a movie, buy a house. I spoke oh. to my partner, May. And my partner, <laughs> May, is like, look, man, it's, it's risky. But you know what? If you don't do it, you're always going to be kicking yourself. Yeah. And look, it's your own money at the end of the day. Just <laughs> don't mess up. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So, you know, had some money aside. I thought, screw it, I'm going to make the film. So I took the rights back for Project Kronos because that was that got like what you call turnaround, which means they they keep renewing the option. And they kept, and this is a couple called Bender Spink at the time. They're like, hey, we want to renew your option. I'm like, yeah, but no one's going to make it. It's like a $35 million movie. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take more money from you. I'm just going to take the rights back for Project Kronos and I'm going to make the feature version. We had like 20 different versions of the script, but like you look at like, no one's going to give me money to make that film, right? It's just, but it was a great experience. It was an amazing experience. I definitely would, would do that again. But I took the rights back and I'm like, look, I'm going to make, I can't make the movie that originally you guys paid me to make. Cause obviously it's, you know, it's not right. It's contractually, but I'm going to go back and, and make the 90 minute version of what the short film was. Cause that worked, that had an audience and they're like, go for it, man. You have our full support. And they, they were really nice about it. But what I did was, um, being a VFX supervisor and a VFX producer, you make friends with executives at studios and directors as well. So I rang them all up and said, hey, man, I'm making my first movie. They're like, cool, man. Who's financing? I'm like, I am. They're like, oh, shit. Okay, well, we're going to just be brutally honest with you. And they just told me all the do's and don'ts. And the biggest takeaways I got from a lot of the advice was don't try to make Star Wars on a low budget. Doesn't matter how amazing you think you are as a visual effects artist, there's a reason why those movies cost that much and look like that. Okay. So we advise you to look at uh, look at what, yeah, look at what um Neil Blancham did with District Nine, even though that was Peter Jackson funded, it had that grittiness about it, right? And you look at what Gareth Edwards did with Monsters, where he shot it like a documentary and it had that grittiness. Yeah, but most importantly, focus on story, story, story. And your visual effects should be something that kind of like supplements your story making, your storytelling. So with that advice, I'm like, this is great. Project Chronos is perfect. It's a fake documentary. I can still use NASA footage. I can still shoot stuff and do it with all the stuff I've learned in visual effects. Long story short, we, we finished the movie in 2017. We started shopping it around. And um, we eventually got a deal with a distribution company called Gravitas Ventures, who loved the movie. And the two executives there, and this, again, this is the interesting thing is, uh, I phoned up a lot of producers, like, what do I do when I distribute, distribute my movie? Like, look, man, first movie, you're probably not going to make any money because they're just going to, they're going to, distributors will just swallow it with cost off. Po- yeah, they'll charge you X amount for posters, festivals. So by the time oh, you're really? finished, right. okay. yeah. And what happens was, because they're sales companies, that's what they do, they yeah, make money that way. Yeah. So they're still recouping their cost. And there's a lot of zeros at the end of these numbers. So you're like, you're never going to make money. And I'm like, I put my house on this. So no, I need to make some money. I mean, that wasn't the intention, but I do want to make a return, right? And the thing you quickly learn in Hollywood is, it's not whether people have liked your movie or not. It's whether the film has been a commercial hit. A commercial hit meaning it made X amount of numbers. So past the budget. So what happened was with Graftas Ventures took it on, they distribute it. We had a lot of control in the distribution. We made our own posters. We made our own trailers. We did a lot of the marketing ourselves. We took a very grassroots approach to marketing, which is I went to 3D World. I went to Cinefax. And you know, they put a massive thing on their blog posts and the magazines and stuff like that because they loved the story of visual effects artists becoming the filmmakers, like the underdogs, right? Yeah. So I, I used the visual effects industry as our marketing tool to get all that press, 
Um, even Wired magazine covered it because it dealt with transhumanism and all of that stuff, oh, cool. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to, so then, yeah, the lesson is not only you have to be a good artist, you've got to be a good freaking PR person to get your stuff out there. But here's the thing. The movie came out 2018 on, um, on iTunes first. Yeah. And it was number two in the iTunes charts next to Blade Runner 2049 and Wonder wow. Woman. I'm like, wow. what? No big name cast. I'm like, okay, we're doing something right with the concept, right? The, the, the way you're promoting it. But then we get our sales report back. So for those of you who don't know, when you make a movie, you get sales reports, right? It usually comes every quarter. Who's, who's well, giving you these? Where do these come from? Gravitasment. So the distributor gives you right. the sales reports. So if you're a producer, you get sales reports. Right. And it, the sales report pretty much says, this is how much money you've made over the over the months or so. This is where the money's gone to. You know, it's gone to iTunes. It's gone to you know um, Apple TV. It's gone to Amazon, all those places. And places that I've never even heard of in the US, like you've got like a million channels out there. And then this is how much money we're taking as commission and it's how much is left over for you. It was around April, May. We had recouped our entire budget and we were like 200% in profit. And they were wow. checking, like we had to double check. This never happens in indie movies, very rarely. And then um, in August, we we're like 400% in profit. And with the money we had, what we just thought was that I really wanted to honor producing in a way that is true. And what I meant from that is, We've all been there. We've been VFX artists helping other filmmakers out there do their music videos and work for free because you just want to do stuff in your showreel. Uh, or you get a VFX house and say, hey, can, can you work on this? Defer the payment. So we had several companies. We had a company called Squint Opera and um, Fillmore in Amsterdam. They helped us do a lot of CG renders because I'd worked there before and my former bosses, they wanted to see me get out there, make movies. So they, they wrote it off, by the way. They're like, no, we're just going to write this off. You know, we'll give you some time. But I came back and said, hey guys, um, my, my movie's made money um who do i um write this check out to they're like what check i like the the thing that we agreed to defer they're like oh shit we wrote that off dude i mean no one ever does that I'm like really yeah and i think because i was a vfx artist i was a vfx producer you know i literally ran studios i'm like no i can't do that i mean i'm going against everything i believe in so, so you, felt did, good you did to do you that. did in the end pay them their full you, thing yeah wow it felt good as a human being to do that, yeah. regardless of business or not. It's honorable and it just feels it feels right. But here's the thing. The biggest, the biggest success though was the fact that in August, remember the film came out in January, right? In August, Netflix comes in and goes, hey, this should be on our, you don't have a European deal. And they wrote a check out because you know what Netflix like? They give one fixed deal, right? It's not like royalties or anything. And that was more than what we had anticipated for. And we, me and my producing partner, Paula Crickard, decided to set up our own production company and make movies going forward. I mean, that's amazing. It's such a good story yeah. of, of how, to, <laughs> how to kind of make it. So we start playing around with things like Midjourney, particularly Fred starts doing this amazing stuff with Midjourney. It starts off kind of weird and we're like, oh, it seems a bit inconsistent. And then one day he starts sending stuff. We're like, what? sorry, where's this from? He's like, I've cracked it. And you get these great messages from him now every now and again. I figured out textures. And then you just get like a hundred things. And you're like, I can't believe, I can't believe we're able to get this, you know, these amazing textures. So great. But uh, Mid Journey was the thing that gave us um, like the droids. And we went through this um, very interesting situation where we were allowing the story to be kind of very influenced by mm. the guy. It was, we were like, I wonder if it can come up with this. And it starts this whole conversation of other stuff. But the danger is scope creep. The danger yes. is, is that you can get stuck in there 
and lost it, forever. You could get lost <laughs> forever. Can you talk about the differences yeah. when you're in story and how you shot sure. rift maybe moving around too much <laughs> well quickly touching on mid journey we i'm using mid journey at the moment just just so you know like we use right. it for exploration and yeah you know, i get a lot of like my producing partner paula would say well you know ai will never take over art you know you still need good artists and she's absolutely right the thing about for me i think the artists that are using ai as part of their tool sets are the one that are going to be continuing to break new waves in in art as opposed to the ones that are like, no, I that is that's abomination to art world. <laughs> They're not really because they think about it, right? We you know oh, art always start yeah. off with yeah. I mean art always start off with like with a paintbrush, right? And then we yeah. have the world of computer graphics, right? And remember when when CAD came out or or you know desktop publishing came out, people were like, oh no, that's people never had a, a fit about it, yeah, yeah. And now you know, we rely on it, right? So yeah. I, it's the same thing with AI. Like AI is not going to take over people's jobs. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like virtual production because oh, you know, virtual production is going to take over the, the filmmaking crew. Absolutely not. You still need all those crew. It's it's a tool, right? Yeah, and and so so we use mid journey to explore ideas, similar to what you just said. Oh well, we can do this, we can do that, and then well, it's just to set the tone. You know, I create pitch decks using um, mid journey. Now, was before I would go on the internet and just download by something, cobble something in Photoshop to create to create a tone book or a mood book. Now I use Midjourney because there's a there's a sense of like uniqueness to it, to the exploration. Um, but that's by no means saying, oh, that we don't need concert artists because once we go into pre-production, I'm going to need something a bit more specific and defined, right? Yeah. And so, you need to move this bit around and that it's, Midjourney doesn't yet understand. Yeah. Oh, that's great. But can you just do it so the camera's a little bit more higher? Exactly. It's, it's, exactly. It's a tool that helps. You know, there's some people that are using, I mean, the foundry, I was over at SIGGRAPH last, um, last month, even though, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. and, and the foundry was showing what they had, um, this tool where it, the machine learning analyzes the frames and then does the roto. I'm like, oh, oh my God, I, all oh, that pain is coming back now. And it's amazing. We're talking clothes and the hair, it analyzes that pixel wow. by pixel. And that's smart. I mean, yeah, you're an idiot as an artist not to use AI to do your roto, at, yeah. least, at least 90% of it, right? So wh- when it came for us with Unreal Engine and the story, you know, obviously we had a script, right? And just so you know how we got into Unreal real quickly, it's, I didn't plan on ever making a movie in Unreal. Like I was using Unreal to do pre You know, we were getting ready to do my third feature, right. you know, live action. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to like oh, download Autodesk subscription and go through the <laughs> whole Maya thing. I thought, you know, this is just a game engine. And I did. I learned it um, over a weekend. And it's very simple. Bring an asset in, a mannequin, bring a camera, block some stuff out. And originally, it was just to create screenshots I can put in Photoshop. And I'm like, ooh, I can like change lenses. I can throw lights. All of a sudden, go down a rabbit hole. I'm making a full-on sequence in a weekend. And showing that, and it was for a movie called Luna. And I was, we went to LA, this is pre-pandemic. And I was showing it to studios that this is cool. Some of them came back going, Wait, wait, what are you pitching? Is this an animated film or live action? I'm like, no, it's live action. Man, it's previous. What are you on about? Go, oh, no, we've seen previous. Previous usually gray boxes and I, very previous is, Yeah, you've got to yeah. bring your imagination to that. That's oh, yeah, good. exactly. A lot of it is tech fizz, right? But yeah. this one, you're getting like reflections. We had like flowing hair and all of that. And, and, it, and when I remember being on a plane thinking, oh, maybe there is something. Maybe we should make an animated film this way. Wait, is anyone else doing that? I don't see anyone else doing that at the time. And then when the pandemic hit, we're like, shit we're not gonna be making live action for a while it doesn't look like it from from the looks of the news no like we got how do and remember i said earlier on the call you got to stay relevant in hollywood or you fade out very quick i'm like shit like how do i like the last movie i made was was 2018 how do i stay relevant 
And I'm like, God. And then we had this, we had a bunch of scripts that were in development. One of them was this unshootable script. That, you know when you, you know, you write this script and you're like, no one's ever gonna make it. I'm just gonna get out my system out of the way. And I wrote this like <laughs> treatment for it. And it had like, it was like Edge of Tomorrow meets Inception. It had death divine physics bending action sequences. And my producer, Paula, was like, if you're gonna make an animated film, you should make something that that warrants the medium of animation, which is like crazy stuff that would be next to impossible to shoot. So we, we, we had this, it was really called Brother originally. It's about this big brother saving his little brother. And then we bought this writer, Stavros Pombalis. Because like, even though I write, I'm not really a writer-writer. I'm a director that writes out of necessity. Also, it's nothing gets greenlit or a conversation would even happen, right? So I had these pages of material and we bought this writer called Stavros, who we, we had met through other producer friends. And it was great. I love collaborating writers. Like the way I jam a writers is I would do a bunch of images, feed it to them. And I go, oh, so that's what you're thinking. And they go write something, send it back. And I'll give a little note. Sometimes I'll write a prose or two, but I'll never say I'm a writer. Writer. I, a lot of these projects, I get story by credit because I write the original treatment stuff. But I love jamming. I decided, you know, I'm not going to do any storyboards or artwork for this. I'm just going to go into Unreal and start. We know what our characters are. We need this guy and this kid. That's for sure. So Andrea, my head of CG at the time, he came on, he started building these characters in Real Asian Character Creator, which we again, never used before. We started to use it for the first time. And we, these were very rough, but we had like a, te- but like, I think we started October 2020 soft pre-production by February 2021. Well, that was last year. We had like 10 minutes mapped out from the script. Right. And the cool thing was Stavros was able to see the dailies and tweak the script as he's watching dailies. And he's like, this never happens, man. Usually you hand the script over. Crazy. That's that right? crazy. It's easy to skip over this. But <laughs> I think what's really crazy about that is that level of creative feedback to go back to the writer and for that not to freak everybody out. Because totally. if you thought about that in a VFX, you'd be like, whoa, no, hang on. You're going to be, we've already, as you said earlier, there's somebody, you know, like you bidding, doing all the bidding yeah. bits. Every, all the money's been pre-decided. So everybody loads everything onto the train. And they decide where that train's going to go and exactly what time it's going to arrive. No one's allowed to put anything else on the track and take it off the yep. track. Yep, and exactly. You've just, you've just basically said, right, there is no train. It doesn't sure. work like that anymore. No, it, it, exactly. And I'm going to use that uh, train um, analogy in a minute because um, what was interesting, Stafford was like, usually I hand the script over. I'm like, and he's like, okay, I'll see you at the premiere, hoping it's going to be good. And um, you're, you, you haven't like completely bastardized the script. And what's great, he was like, oh, I see what you're doing there. Oh, you know what? Let me just rewrite this bit of dialogue because now I see visually and throw what you're doing. And it's great because like we would just, we, we would just record scratch dialogue, feed it into Reillusion iClone, AccuLip Sync, boom, straight into Unreal as, you know, as an FBX. And we've got it. And all of a sudden we have this pipeline which allowed us to work in a very agile way as opposed to your traditional conventional linear way where you do sign off your animatics, sign off your previous, sign off your blocking, your layout, shading, blah, blah, blah. And if you're in lighting stage, you want to make a change to layout, everyone's like, oh, that's going to cost a lot of money or you have to go back or you may lose those artists. So we had a very agile way. So in around February, March, we had 10 minutes of the movie. Now, right. usually you go around and say, hey, man, I've got 10 minutes proof of concept. It's a budget. You know, We're looking for financing. We didn't do that. We're like, hey, man, here's 10 minutes. We're in production. Here's dailies, because you see all the time code and everything. Here's dailies of where we are at the moment. This train's moving. If you want to board this train, you can hop on it. If not, we're still going to make the movie anyway. Wait, wait, wait. Who are you having that conversation with? Financiers, executives, um, potential sales companies. You know, because we still wanted to raise money for this, right? To, uh, to help 
get it for and yeah eventually we showed it to epic and the mega grant and uh, and that's how we got the mega grant basically um and because um because we're like look we're making this movie in a way we're not dependent on a particular grant or a particular movie um movie financing structure we're just going to make it and you know and it was 100 percent true we were going to make it in a way but the conversation is different the mentality is different because now they look at you like oh shit this guy is not like we can't put this guy through development hell. He's making the movie. So either we jump on now or we like, okay, we miss out. And it's it's a really powerful position to be in because did it Bob Geldof. <laughs> Bob Geldof did. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds more like a startup now. Because I've come out of that world and I've sat in those rooms and I've worked on those pitch decks and I've, you know, and you you build those MVPs so you can take it in a room to an investor and you tell them about the vision and you're really selling yourself and you're trying to sure. get them to, to buy into your team. It sounds more like that situation where you're Kinda. saying, Look, we're, we're yeah. going to do this. Do you want to yeah. put some money into it? You think we'll get some money out? Right. There sounds like there's a, yeah. Yeah, exa- exactly. But the point was like, we had, me and Paula had already put a lot of the profits we made from the beyond our movie into a, a fund that we knew that, we can continue for like six or seven months to make this movie. And originally, you know, the original idea was just going to be me and Andrea. It was me and Andrea one day were like, hey, fuck it, man, let's make our own movie. You know, Andrea will do all the pipeline characters and I'll do all the sequence and animation. And then as you grow, you're like, we, gotta, we need to bring more people on. Yeah, we need and so on. <laughs> so we need some help. We're going to need a bigger boat. But yeah, but, <laughs> but the Good point reference. was we had that 10 minute and not only that 10 minute earned us a mega grant from Epic, also, and us external finances to come in, like equity finances right. that we had known over the years. Like, oh my God, you guys are doing this. But also we put a lot of press out already that's like shown behind the scenes and stuff. And Epic did the whole spotlight story. Reillusion did their pitch and produce thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've been in magazines. Te- you've been, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah definitely PR slutting around, man. And um, <laughs> that should be a term. Um, but, but also the fact that we had a lot of technology sponsorship come in as well to help us get to the point where this was a live production. There was no turning back. And when you when you kind of like present in that way, people look at you very differently. Potential finances are like, oh my God, you know, how do we how do we board this? Right. You know, but even like people that you want to work with, like, you know, we're putting so much material out there that we had we we're inundated with people asking, hey, can we help out on this movie? Can we part of this movie? You know, we end up hiring some really amazing Unreal Engine, like Alex Kong, who's our motion capture artist based in, um, he was in Montreal, now he lives in Vancouver, now Mexico. Um, <laughs> he's, he's been following our stuff for a while and he's like, hey man, I've got an XN suit. How can, what can I do to help? And he came on board. We had Gabriella, who's this amazing virtual production artist that I found on Facebook. We ended up collaborating. She did a lot of motion capture, a lot of our te- technical figuring out. None of these people would have boarded this project if there wasn't stuff out there already. If we weren't already in production, this wasn't like, oh, here's a short film and here's a concept and we're going to raise some money if you help us to make them. That's been done, man. That's kind of like, that's like so like last year, right? Whereas now it's like, no, we're making this freaking movie. Do you want to board it? So that was how we essentially got the movie made in that way. I mean, there's a level of risk, of course, but here's the thing, because we're working in real time, you know, any ideas I had, and by the way, we pivoted creatively on this project so many times, but that's okay because we're final pixels. We're not rendering 20 yeah. passes and compositing it and then put it for an edit. You know, the pipeline essentially was take the rough characters as they were, block out the shots, render something, just anything, something, and whack it in the edit. And we had this rule at Hazimation, this kind of this mantra that we kept with, like, the whole team kind of like tries to abide to, which is, you know, progression over perfection 
Just get stuff moving. Don't wait to get the perfect tree in the background or the perfect you know, finger holding the gun. It doesn't matter this intersection. Just stick it in the edit. We'll know if it's going to work editorially. Story is king. And you can you, so you're looking for it to read, right? You're just saying, does this, does this before we go for the detail? Hundred percent, yeah. Big rocks first. hundred yeah. percent, man. What and like, I've worked on, I yeah, I remember working on big CG shows, and loads of these big sequences would be cut out. I'm like, oh my god, that's months of work cut out. Yeah. So I, I, when making a riff, I'm like, we're not doing that. You know, we're just gonna bash stuff out. And the fact that yeah, you can go to marketplace and get a couple of assets, really rough assets, put them in get a car in now. I'm not going to build a freaking car. I'm going to download a freaking car and put it in there. If it works, great. Then we bring our artists on to customize the car or build it further or whatever, right? But the point is you're in real time. So you've got to work in a very real time way. Like for example, when we do dailies, traditional dailies, you render a quick time, you run it through CineSync and then you know everyone makes notes and someone collects the notes in a spreadsheet, very VFX, right? Yeah. And then a week later, all the artists kind of figure out what they're doing. <laughs> this is how we do dailies at Hazimation, right? We all share our Zoom screen. We sh- we open Unreal Engine. We run through our shots. I can give feedback. The artist can address the feedback. By the time we finish the daily session, I would say 90% of the shots are addressed. Now, of course, certain things that we have to go rebuild or reshade, we're not going to do yeah. that on the Zoom call. But things like, can we just move that feedback? Can we just adjust that lens? It's amazing. All of a sudden, as a filmmaker, I'm doing every single shot, by the way. So I will block out every single shot. I'll put the cameras in. I'll put it in the edit. I make sure I'm happy with that sequence. Then I'm literally pitching to my artist. I'm like, hey guys, I put this sequence together. What do you think? Like, this is the this is the kind of the pacing. Yeah, you know, I encourage artists to give feedback because they're going to work on this shot. And most of the time they're like, oh my God, like it's set up. Give it to us. We'll we'll take it to the next level. And they do. They'll take what I've done and make a hundred million times better. But here's the thing: they're not second guessing what I want because they can see. All the shots are blocked out. They know where the characters are going and everything. Again, like coming from visual effects, I would see that level of experimentation happening. Every filmmaker should have the right and luxury to experiment. That's the whole idea of filmmaking, right? It's to it's, it's art, right? It's not like ones and zeros. But I remember seeing like those of filmmakers and visual effects. I thought, oh my God, I really wish I had like, I could change that shot. But I know if I spend my money on this shot, then I won't be able to do the other shot that I really want to do. And this is compromise. Whereas when you're working in a real-time element, Yes, you do have those lines you have to draw, but there is a point where the filmmaker can go off and, you know, I would, I would advise every director that wants to use Unreal is to just learn how to do simple things on Unreal. Bring a character in, learn how to do your blocking. You know, it doesn't have to be the final thing. It doesn't have to be, but give your artist something that they can look at and go, oh, I can see what you're doing there. Okay, now I'm going to tweak the camera and put better light in and make it better. But I know what you want. The shot has a shot number. It lives in the edit now. And I think that's why we're able to get so much done in this movie in such short time. I mean, in our situation, we've done a lot of world building, in a way, a lot of soft world building. It's a kind of pioneer story. Did you, did you, have you seen the trailer? I think I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you did. I think, you, I think you said, yeah, 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 yeah. commented. <laughs> cool, I love it. It's unique. Um, uh, the premise, if you remember, there was like a red house on stilts uh, that got shown in there. That came out of mid-journey, and that was one of those shots where we were like, oh, yes. That's the movie. It's that. That's the movie. And we were putting in things about in the style of No Man's Sky, you know, yeah. 70s sci fi, yeah. whatever, yeah. you know, book covers and all sorts of stuff, um, Mobius comic style, yeah. you know, all these sort of things to get the right, <laughs> to get an interesting um, art style. And like I say, that was informing the story, but there's still an element of me, I, I can feel myself wanting to be pulled into something a little bit linear like at the moment we're doing some look dev work where 
we're using we've got a, a, a guy who's a TD essentially who's building this um, you know a, a system in Houdini that would allow us to build uh, a head body with other bits on it for the droids and it allows us to really randomize those droids because the idea is these things are sent from earth they land on venus um and it's that sort of the the red house is the pioneer house ah. there's like um under that house is is going to be some kind of greenhouse where it's a bit like an airlock so it's right taking stuff off of this terraformed venus um which is you know algae and other things that are starting to grow there and then seeing, okay, what can we make out of that? How do we grow things with this? What technology can we kind of build with it? So it's a, and then that stuff makes it, it makes it into the the house where the people right. are actually living at the top, and they're obviously going to be scientists and whatever. So there's this, there's there's this constant. There's so many interesting threads in here for us. There's so many interesting ideas that we want to explore. Hmm. That we've discussed different themes that are very typical of, of science fiction. Um, <laughs> one thing is that it's got to be post dystopian. So I see Akira on the wall behind <laughs> you and, and Blade Runner, I think, is the other one. Of course. One. Of course. Um, two of the best films in the world, man. Um, but we wanted to go post dystopian. Like, what if we weren't scared of AI? Not the Terminator, but what comes yeah. after that? What comes yeah. when we've resolved accepted um, yeah accepted it and, and yeah. done something with it is because it, it feels, feels like it's reflecting some of the views towards mid-journey right now some of the views before there let's what happens if we embrace it not naively but yeah you know, we, we are able to do something with it so with that in mind with the fluidity of that do do we want to lock this down as a the idea was let's make like a, a two minute thing so we can to help us along with the look dev and give us a sort of milestone. Let's let that then grow into a 10 minute thing. And then if we could talk to the right people, we should try and turn that into like a, a, a movie series, or show. An anthology right. or, but how I, the, yeah. everything you've described right now is making me think back about these plans that are in my head. But then I'm thinking, well, I don't know how the hell you you did that because you know these people. You did that because the Hollywood thing doesn't scare you because you've been in those rooms. So you know, what would you say to yeah. filmmakers like us who were? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll give you one advice. And, and that advice is it doesn't matter how amazing your look dev is or how revolutionary and pioneering it is. And it is really awesome what you guys are doing, by the way. Um, but the the thing is, it all boils down to one thing. And it's going to be that one question that anyone and everyone's going to ask you is, why should this project exist? It's a very important question because there's so many ways you can answer. There's no right or wrong way. Like, you know, for example, like when I made my first movie to be on, the question is, like, well, what, why, why are you making this movie? Why, why should this movie be out? And for me, like, it was a love letter to science fiction movies that I loved growing up watching when I, was, when I was a kid. But most importantly, I was making a movie that had a social commentary of flight or fight. And it reflected the world we're living in. And I felt like science fiction was a great platform to do that. Again, you shouldn't force social commentary in your films for the sake of it. But like, you know, have a reason of why. And also, if you could succinctly pitch the idea, it doesn't have to have a beginning, middle, end, but like, what is the elevator? If you had 30 seconds to pitch someone right. this project, what would that project pitch be? And it's not something you can whip out very quickly. You know, like for me, the way I pitched the beyond was I didn't want to say, oh, this is about a movie where these people get transplanted in an astronauts, um, human 2.0 astronauts. So don't just That's too long-winded. I just decided, you know what? I'm going to pitch it in this way. And this is, what if one day we wake up in the morning, open our window, and we see a frigging wormhole in the sky? That was the question. What if? Have the what, what if question. Yeah. What would we yeah. do? What if? And then yeah. the question is like, you know, how is society going to 
react to this? What are the government going to do? What is NASA going to do? All of a sudden, you've got this conversation going. You've got a conversation like, you know, what if? And that is your pitch. And then the executive's like, you know what? We should meet for coffee and talk a bit more about this. I want to hear the rest of this. As opposed to like trying to fill in a 90-minute movie pitch into like a sentence in an elevator. I, it's it's interesting you say because I think the question that would come, I was, as soon as you started saying that, I was thinking, yeah, I don't have one. I don't have one. What is ours? What, what would ours be? And in my mind, I'm like, and then and then it just sort of gently appeared in my mind that what if we were optimistic about the future our future with artificial intelligence. That's nice. That's, yeah, we've that said that. We've said that yeah. word. It's we've a debate. That you've, you've, you've incited it, and you've already you've incited a discussion. And that's storytelling. Storytelling isn't necessarily about you know you read a book from from page one to the end and that's it. Yeah. Most of my favorite movies, like one of my favorite movies of all time, is Donnie Darko. I remember watching that, oh, and I remember coming out of yeah. the cinema. I was having conversations, discussions about this movie. Like, what if? Like, did Jake Gyllenhaal go to bed with that smile because he knew the plane was going to hit the roof? But Or does he know that his girlfriend could have another opportunity of living? It was all these questions. And that's when you read Blade Runner. Blade Runner's a classic. Wait, yeah. they're going to the elevator, but the origami's on the floor. Does that mean they're going to get caught at the end? You know, and I exactly. is, yeah, yeah. Is, is, is Harrison Ford a replicant? I mean, he's yeah. got the reflection in his eyes. I love those conversations. And that's true science. That's kind of like science fiction in its general. So definitely use that as the pitch. That's the advice I would give. Mm, that's amazing advice because it's it's yeah i mean is it a good path to do something like it sounds like you've kind of been down this road to make a short film and then take that around the sort of short film circuit use that to draw or is it is are you are people like you carving a new way forward where you can just take the 10 minute film maybe take it to a couple of festivals but you really just take it straight into a room with netflix and say here's 10 minutes short film I've st- you know I've got all the assets. It's like it's it could be in production and turned into a ninety minute yeah, thing. Like, yeah, I mean, is and that? It, yeah, I mean, absolutely. But he- here's the thing that I this is the this is the moment of dark depression now that could kick in for a lot of filmmakers. Is right. it doesn't matter how amazing your idea is. I mean, there's so many amazing ideas out there. Yeah, most of the movies and projects get greenlit two ways. One, they have an amazing star attached to it. It's the same old thing. Who's you go to any studio? Go to yeah, love it, man. Okay, um, who's in it? Or who have you got attached? And so you can come up with the most formulatic, lamest idea that's been done a trillion times. But if you have a really big name actor, they're like, oh my God, well, this movie's greenlit tomorrow. And lot of the way to do that is you, you, you team up with an agency like CAA or WME. But here's right. the thing. We went through that route for Luna. But the problem is then their value changes. If they make a really crappy movie, then their value goes down. It's, a, it's the Hollywood end of the very old legacy system. So what we did with Rift was we're like, we're not going to go down that route. We're going we're gonna to make the movie, but we are going to have big name voice talents that are big in video games. So we have Jane Perry, who's done, who's just won a BAFTA for like games like Returnal on PS5, Cyberpunk, Hitman. We've got oh, the wow. one who plays our main character, did the Walking Dead games. And so yeah, to a Hollywood exec, they're like, who? But to yeah. the game that you, which let's face it, is yeah. a way bigger industry than the film industry by numbers. Yeah. We target that audience. All of a sudden, sales companies go, oh my God, you already have a massive audience base. We want to tap into that. And all of a sudden, you, you look at what Hollywood's happening at the moment. They're doing all these video game adaptations. They know the market, right? So it, a lot of it is knowing your market. You don't necessarily need to go to traditional route. I mean, filmmakers are always going to have a level of traditional legacy, which is the way it's distributed. The, the other way to get your movie made as well, which we found as well, and a lot of people have found this as well, is you know, sometimes you don't necessarily need to have the big name actor first. Sometimes if you if you have an executive 
that has a level of clout or something. Like, you know, for us, we're quite lucky that, you know, the fact that we, we use Unreal Engine, you know, now we can go to like any studio and say, hey, well, you know, we're, we're using the same technology that's used to like create games like Fortnite, the billion dollar game well, industry. Because they're like, Literally. we know we yeah. all need to use it. Like you, exactly. you know how to use this. Ex- exactly. Yeah. But here, here's the thing. When, when we, the same way I did the Beyond where I asked a bunch of people advice before going off spending my money. Same thing we did for Rift. You know, we're like, okay, we're going to make an ad- animated film. Specifically, we're making an adult animated film. When I say adult, I'm thinking like Akira, Cyberpunk, you know. Yeah, but, not, yeah, not, the, yeah not porn or anything like that. No. And, um, <laughs> but the point, the point is, it's a, it's a different market because obviously animation traditionally yeah. is linked to kids, right? So we didn't want to hit the kids market because it's a huge market to tap into. Yeah. Like, no way. So... Love Death and Robots came out. I was just like, gonna oh. say it. I was just <laughs> yeah. gonna say it. And the and the other one, the um, League of Legends one. What was that called? Oh, Arcane. Arcane, Arcane. was a big turning point for us. We're like, okay, we gotta make this movie. But it's here's the thing: exactly the right time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's about timing. The same thing yeah. I made my 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 last two features. You know, the Beyond and also Origin Unknown with Katie Sackoff. Both of those movies were made at a time where it was a big demand for cerebral yeah. science fiction. You know, yeah. science where it makes you think and those kind of like very Kubrick kind of vibe. Um, whereas um, with, with adult animation, it was the right time because they're like, oh, this is like Love, Death and Robots or this is like Arcane. But hey, just remember, Love, Death and Robots is Tim Miller, Blur Studios, David Fincher. There's a whole big backing behind that. Arcane is based on a very huge popular video game, League of Legends. So you, a lot of people go, oh yeah, we can do it now. But you've got to look at your market and look at what you have. How do you sell yourself don't bullshit yourself. Don't bullshit because people can see through that. But like, you know, for me, like, yes, I had directed a show and been and an exec producer on a Disney show. Great. I can use that. But not everyone has that. Right. So yeah. what can we you do? Don't. Like, well, <laughs> yeah, but you've worked at NPC, right? You've yeah, worked at NPC. Yeah. You worked. Some, so, yeah. yeah. So don't discount that. So, okay, I've worked at NPC. Great. That gives financiers or anyone that wants to board your project, something you know, in terms of high profile, the level of confidence. Like, oh, you know what? Apple, I'm going to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on your project because I feel like you can pull this off. And it really is down to, can you pull it off, right? You can do a 10-minute short, but that's not the same as making a 90-minute movie. And you got like, the people that are going to be paying for that movie or be involved in, whether it's tech sponsors as well. We had the same thing with Asus and Video before they came on board. They're like, yeah, that's great. We love your pitch, but can you pull this off? Because what, you do, know, what do you mean before Asus and Nvidia came on board? What, what so do you mean? A- a- Asus, Asus, the, the computer company, came on board as tech sponsors. So they gave us machines to work with oh, and wow. monitors to oh, work on. Okay, wait, 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 back up. I didn't realize that was the thing. That is the thing. But here's the thing. Here's a here's a big point I'm going to make on this. Okay, right. A lot of people think, oh, you get loads of stuff for free. Boom, done. Remember, we're making a commercial movie. Yeah, this- it's a commercial movie. No, I mean they will give it to free, but there's a lot of backers and forth. Like when we when we got the Asus monitors and the computer, which was amazing. We could not have done this movie without it, by the way. And Nvidia giving us the A six thousand card at a time oh, where it was very hard god. to get a GeForce card. Oh right? my god! Yeah. But there was a lot of work involved in convincing these. Guys. We had to show this ten minutes. We had to show how we how this project is going to help essentially sell more Asus machines and NVIDIA cards, let's be frank, right? And um, and how we are going to continually do stuff on social media, not just do a post of me using the computer, but like, you know, give them footage, non-embargoed stuff. There's a lot of work. And so you've got to be prepared to do that. It's not like, oh, 
give me the machines for free. Great. And I get to use it. And when the movie's done, and it's done. And they'll do one case study or something. Or no, do one. Exactly. Yeah, There's yeah. a lot you're giving. Because look, here's the thing. You're not only getting, to us, it wasn't really getting just the hardware. It was getting their technical support. It was more important we getting their PR outreach, right? Because we're not a PR company. So people like Asus, NVIDIA, Epic, and Reillusion, all those people like WD Black who gave us SSD drives, you know, they have PR outreach. And so your job as a filmmaker isn't just about making cool no. shit in Unreal and telling great stories. Your job as a filmmaker is how do you leverage that to keep making that movie and keep going and staying high profile technology-wise, financially-wise, and story-wise. So... It's God, a new way gold. of making movies. This is gold. <laughs> this is absolute gold. But what, how do you how do you get to hold of these people? Like, what do you what do you you know you sure. you you just reach out to? It really lit. I mean, I know you're probably waiting for this like amazing answer, but it really it's is a email sim- address. Yeah. <laughs> it's an email, right, dude? No, it's LinkedIn. It's oh. guys, it's LinkedIn. I'm not even I kidding. It, it yeah. really is LinkedIn. Like yeah. you post, you put certain hashtags in, people see that stuff. You know, like something, I think it was some assistant or something like for, for the social media community channels, uh, Asus saw it. NVIDIA saw me speak at a keynote and something yeah. give do conferences. Like I don't get paid for any of these conferences. I don't care because to me, it's a great platform to show off to people. And there may be one person in that crowd. So here's, here's how I got, you know, how I got connected with Epic, right? I was given a talk at the Future Film of London one day showing, um, this was 2019, I was given this talk, showing how I my career progressed from live action to doing previs and my new film. Yeah. And I showed like a five-minute clip of Luna in Unreal Engine 419 or something, right? And two people in the crowd were from Epic, a guy called Ben Lumsden. And he's the business manager for um, Epic in London. And he came up because, hey, man, I loved your talk. We should talk a bit more on how, you know, what you want to do in Unreal and how we can support you. If I was like, oh, well, I'm not getting paid to do this talk, so I'm not going to put an effort in doing any. And I spent like two days putting that keynote presentation. So worth it because I got this really great connect out of that, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff you have to do off your own ass to get that. But then once you get that, it's about honoring that deal and making it as exciting as possible. Yeah, no, you're right. And packaging it up and, and I mean, like with this, the podcast is good, but we yeah. need to cut the gold out of this and share it and, <laughs> and put it into other things. There's so much, there's a lot of, I'm going to be panning this episode. Just, <laughs> you're a wise man. So many things falling out of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, well, thinking about the audience, I can see it now with Rift really clearly. One thing you told us on the Summer of Unreal talk was that you're, didn't you say you were doing like three days you were doing yeah. three, I might have got this wrong, but you were doing three <laughs> no, no. four days on the film and then you yeah. s- switch over to the game. But of course you're reusing assets. You're, you're bringing the story yeah. in from one to the other. Yeah, how does that, that was pure. How does that, that, work? That, was, that was pure accident. And at the same time, right. it was a business strategic opportunity. So right. what happened was like Sam Rabello, who's this like amazing Unreal Engine artist we work with, um, he was hired to do some assets. And then one weekend I was like, hey, what are you doing, man? He goes, oh, I'm just building a game level. I'm like, what? you make game levels because yeah and then we like we did a game jam session said let's just take one of the levels in the movie migrate it into a game project and let's just see what we get right kind of like mid-journey right see what you get and it was me andrea our head of cg and um and sam rabello after the weekend we did this game jam session just moving the character leon around shooting protecting the kid very very rough collisions were all over the place but it was fun we're like holy shit we have a game now we didn't want to make a game because we could because we're in unreal we should make a game no we had to have a same reason we're making an animated film because we want to 
honor the medium and push my storytelling with that medium that I can do film. What can we do in games? And I went back and looked at all the material that me and Stavros had, Stavros, the writer, had been doing. And there were so many things cut out. Well, like, because there's only so much you can do in a 90-minute movie. But in a branch narrative medium like a video game, oh my God, all of that stuff. And we always had this running joke in the movie. And I, I've got to be careful not to give so much away because the movie's not out yet. But yeah, the, it's about this kid that has special abilities, hence Akira reference. Um, but in the movie, you know, this kid is using his powers to try and reset time to find the right moment his brother breaks him out of the facility and save the world and so on. But in the game, we decided, what would be cool if we could use the kid as an actual weapon while still protecting him? Every time you use him as a weapon, he gets weaker. So there's this kind of strategic gameplay involved. It's kind of like Metal Gear Solid meets Devil May Cry in a very kind of splinter cell action. And it didn't cost us anything in terms of like additional financing because we was we were still in the same team or anything. And yeah. we were still using Blueprint. Same game engine. It's a yeah. game, <laughs> game engine. Exactly. I mean, obviously, Sam... Yeah, has got more game coding experience than all of us. So he came on and kind of led that, which is amazing. And then we released it on Steam as an early access demo. Got really good feedback. And now, we, and now we're signed with the Microsoft Independent Developers Program. We have dev kits. We're, we're oh, wow. to game. Yeah, yeah, that oh, was announced that a few months ago. It's incredible. Yeah, thanks. That's um, amazing. Well done. Yeah, so and that's is, because I mean, we so did that's that. that's gone full steam ahead. But <laughs> yeah. did, you, it, was, did that blow a hole in your budget? Or... No, not at all, because we were doing oh. that as more of a side thing. Um, yeah. Eventually, we, you know, as the project was getting more sequencer heavy and Sam is much more environments and lighting and assets, we're like, well, Sam, now that, you know, this is all sequencer heavy, you've done all your stuff, why don't you just focus on the game for like a few weeks or a month or something? And he was able to do it. So we're able to retain our team. And that's the other thing we, we as a company, you know, speaking from my companies, where my company production hat now is me and my business partner, Paula, we have this rule is that is we don't want to have high turnover of staff. No. It, I mean, dude, the paperwork is insane on its own. So I don't want to do that. So for us, it's fine. That's why it's, you know, we have this running joke. It's kind of like to work at Hazemation, like we're going to get in at Harvard. We're very specific. And the type yeah. of people we hire is we, we're not looking for, for artists that just knows how to use Unreal. Let's face it. Anyone can use Unreal if you really sit down and do the tutorials and learn it. For us, it's, we're looking for people that use Unreal in a very interesting way, specifically storytellers. Right. So yeah. like Sam, when he came in, he's shown us some of the stuff he was doing in the games world. We're like, okay, we're not making a game at the time, but this is very cool because the way you lit it, there's a story behind the way you lit it. And you know, we just hired this, this girl called Robin who came on. And again, you know, she's a hardcore gamer. And she just knows everything about game world and as a game player, and she knows how to put things together. So for us, it's really how do you use, because we've hired artists before where they said, we know how to use Unreal. We, we're we, we've, done, we've done like the fellowship yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, the fellowship is amazing because yeah, it is. Yeah, people that come out of fellowship come out as filmmakers, right? So, yeah. but like we've had people say, "Oh, I've, I've done a course and known how to use Unreal and now to do blueprints," but they don't have a creative bone no. in their body. You're like, "Oh, well, that's 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 not what we're looking for. We're looking for artists, not robots." You know, you know, give you a brief, take it further. You're in a real time engine. You can experiment. Show us versions. There's a question here also about. Your this is your own IP. So you've, mm. you said you managed to get some people in. You've got these great voices to the voice acting. Yeah. How do you protect the IP you've got, but also be out yeah. in the open? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite fortunate that my business partner Paula Crickard is a hardcore producer. She right. Is, so she's got like a, a bit of a legal background as well. So the first thing we did was, you know, we copyrighted our, our material. We have, um, we call a chain of title. And the chain title says who owns what. And all of that is illegal. And this shit costs money. I'm going to just tell this to everyone now. 
this is not cheap. You know, I, I always have this running joke. I don't want to pay lawyers fees. They're so expensive for like one hour and they charge X amount. But yeah. what you're paying for is not really their one hour's time just making a few amendments on a, on a, on a legal document. You're paying for the knowledge. You're yeah. paying for the knowledge. You're paying for that security. And you're paying for that, like, that, legal, in, in, you know, that legal binding status. Like this is protected. And if you mofos try to rip me off, you know, hey. Yeah, yeah. So that's what you're paying for. So get a lot of your, I always say get your house in order first before going out. And right. yeah, and that's a big thing. Like, you know, I've seen movies get made and amazing movies get made, but they don't get released because the, the paperwork isn't there. The release forms aren't there. You know, um, the insurance isn't paid for. We have liability right. insurance on this movie. And you think, well, it's just an animated film, man. On Unreal. Of course you need liability insurance because if someone tries to sue you, what's going to happen, right? I, no, I to see get, what you mean. Yeah, of yeah. Of course. Distribute, if you want to get your movie released of a reputable distributor, not some like, yeah, you know, underground thing, but some reputable distributor that will go out to like the Netflixes and so on. They need all of that paperwork in order, and that's something I didn't know until making my first movie. What would that mean in our case? Like trying to do this kind of does that does that apply to like short films in festivals or people? Uh, no, you know, I mean for distributors I mean, coming up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, short films. You still need your release forms. Like obviously, if you have an actor doing a voice, then you need them to sign a form. If you have an artist working on the project, you need them to sign sign a waiver release, and it's fine. My work can be used in this film for commercial purposes. You know, it needs. Well, to I didn't that. realize that. Right. Oh, and then oh, there's a sense of I mean, we're already here's a difficult question. You could you you can be the <laughs> you can be the judge <laughs> and jury. You can be judge, judy, and executioner. We're we're in we're definitely I'd say we're in a position now where the IP started, you know, with less people, but now there's uh, the way it's kind of working really well is to actually bring in lots of people's ideas. So it's it's getting to the point where it's quite difficult to now say, well, you know, it was Lennon and McCartney. Because no, actually, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. been through the whole band, and it's you know. So how do you? I mean, do you need to? Do you need to look at those things early on? Like you would it, in the startup, this, you know, this, people this, just make something. Yeah, and no, Facebook for sure. Gets famous, and then suddenly you're like, <laughs> you know, someone has to yeah. be. No, I mean, this, this is why. I mean, this is probably why you know, especially in the film industry, that there are specific titles like a produ- when someone gets a producing credit, they're not just getting a producer credit because like. Hey, I'm a producer. Give me a producer credit. No, that producing credit, even an executive producer credit carries a lot of weight. You don't just flippantly give exec producer credits to everyone. Hey, man, you want to be an exec producer because you let me use the room? Fine, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. When you're making, when you make me for a short film, yes, if you put it in special thanks, but in a commercial entity, like a feature film, that is essentially the job of the feature film is to go out and sell it to your audience yeah. so that they can buy it and watch it and so on, right? To make returns and all that. You need, to have certain positions. So if someone comes on as an exec producer, make it very clear what is their role and what they're going to be getting out of that. You know, like everyone has ideas and you're right. You know, Andres, he's given so many ideas, but does he get a writing credit? Does he get writing payments? No, but he's an artist and that is part of his job to take that further. But you have right. your writers. They are the writers. They are the law keepers in terms of the story and stuff. Your yeah. director's job is to he or she to deliver and execute that storytelling whatever deal making they get where they, they get paid some money now deferred later or they get they get a producing fee like for example I'm going to be open like me and my business partner Paula we didn't take we deferred our producing fees on this because I'm directing this and Paula's post-producing it so we're able to keep ourselves going and afloat by getting paid on that but our producing fees no we're going to get that afterwards and all that has to be in paper and you can do that at right. the start of the project you can do that in mid-project my point is when you go to start talking to distributors need to have all of that stuff ready 
You know, where, where do we? Where do I? Where do I? Where's? Is there like a someone written like a handy list? Your wife is a lawyer. Yeah, my wife is a lawyer. Actually, she's a really good one as well. Which is, I win no arguments at home. Oh no, I'm going to have to cut that out of the podcast. She won't listen to this. She won't listen to it. I win no arguments. She'll agree with that. I, I mean, look, it's not really hard to find the people. I think the point is, you just got to remember that to get a contract done costs money. So it's very important to make it very clear that what is what is your end game here? Like, you don't want to go and get a bunch of legal costs for a short film which is only going to go in a festival. I mean, that's ridiculous. But yeah. if your short film is a proof of concept with the intent of going to make a feature film with it, then you need to have something in there saying like, you know, the, the, here's the biggest problem I find is like producers promising crew, hey, work on this short film for free. When we get the money, we get the feature. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's not fair. It doesn't feel right. No. It doesn't feel right, but also it's a it's a crazy bet because no one you don't know things could change no. like you can make an amazing short film today right and then by the time it gets into production say two years right or if you're lucky a year the market has changed no one wants that movie so what yeah what are you gonna do right so i would say just be very specific and on the people keep your core team together like your your writers your director your producers even producers come and go but like you know for me it was my head of cg andrea tedeschi i, I could have made riff without Andrea being on board. And I've worked with Andrea since 2015. He worked on all my short films, but I never promised that, hey, when I make it big one day, you come with me. But so far, he's worked on every single of my feature films. Yeah, and it he- feels like we have this really tight core group that is creatively courageous that there's safe conversations we support each other like there it, it feels like a it feels like a like a band like it did when I used to play in nice. bands. You're just yeah. you know you, you just feel locked in. And we've tried to bring other artists and people into that. And actually it hasn't worked because someone's <laughs> right. come in and just said, I just need you to tell me what to do. Like, yeah. you're like oh, no, yeah. no, you know, you're, you're free to come up with like that. Just tell me what to do. Like, give me the <laughs> thing and I'll do it. And that's kind of helped me realize there is that core. Yes. And then there is the, there's the inner, there's a kind of inner circle. And then there's the people who, not that they don't want to be involved, but they, they just want to focus on what they do. Yeah, and there's um, nothing wrong with that. There's nothing no, wrong, there's with, nothing that wrong with that at all. Absolutely. No, no. In fact, we you know we've we've worked with a few people where they're like amazing at doing you know hair grooming for like you know for characters or yeah. doing great cloth sim. I'm like, that's okay. Yeah, you, know, you do the most amazing cloth sim. I'm going to hire you to do the most amazing cloth sim. That's fine. But like, but in terms of your core team, you know, if you want to retain your core team, this is why we have a very generalist approach to our core team. You know, like from Sam to Miles to to robin and you know even like ernesto who's in argentina who's our development guy you know it, everyone can jump in once in a while and do some blueprints if they have to or go in and and adjust an asset or go in and adjust the camera now i can do that i probably won't do it as good as them but at least i know i can do that and not have to wait until someone's available right so i think having that generous approach and the fact that everyone's learning everyone's sharing that knowledge there's been there's been times where new people have joined the company they didn't realize that i'm the director of the project they just didn't realize because I'm like, <laughs> hey, and and I don't I don't want to have I don't need to tell people that I am the director. It's no, no. it's in the fucking contract. I don't have to prove that. Yeah, yeah. No, my, my my job is to empower people and the yeah, exactly. artists and the team to exactly. do the job yeah. and to do the, to the best ability because it just makes the story look good and and ultimately makes me look good as a filmmaker. So you your job is to empower them. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. The, the, this is like, how do I give, um, what, what does Fred need to have? What does Loretta need to write the best story? How do we get the best out of everybody and, and you know, give them the tools you they need? You are doing a banging and, job so far, man. Well, it's, I think it's working. We've, we've, something's working, definitely working. We're, we're, we're both 
doing the same thing in terms of when yeah. making content. You know, yeah, I feel regardless like, of how far, yeah. you know. It's you're making me feel much more like like it's much more possible. Like it's it, it I, is. It is possible. I think you no, know, there there is a saying anything is possible, right? But the thing is though, in reality, it's only possible if you have a plan. And that's okay if the plan changes. Yeah. It's okay for the plans to pivot and change, of course. But to have an idea of what you want to do and 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 how you want to do it. And also you know, the thing I would say is just accept the fact that you may fail. It's okay to fail. I mean, my God, I have failed a million times, whether it's a creative idea to a decision, to a business decision, I failed. But you know what? That's fine because it makes me who I am today. And I feel like, you know, that, you know, that's going back to the idea of like working at bigger facilities and smaller facilities. I always found when working at a bigger facility, I'm on edge to fail because there's so many eyeballs looking at me and I've got, and I want to stay in that job. Whereas I found in a small place, you know, if you fail, you say, look, I fucked this up, but like, how do I recover from this? Or what did I do wrong? How do I avoid it? You can have that conversation. And that's kind of something I find with a real time filmmaking element because it's so not linear driven strictly. I mean, it is linear, but not strictly that you have that place to experiment. Like our Zoom yeah. calls, you know, we'll look around and goes, oh, you know what? I can see where you went wrong there, mate. You just hit that button there. Oh, got it. Fine. And that's a creative and technical thing. But from a, from, a, from a business point of view, from a filmmaking point of view, the thing that I quickly learned is um, it's like you're making art. It's Marmite, dude. Not everyone is going to love your movie. Once you've got that in your head. Yeah. You can, I'm I mean, not trying I to please to make, everybody. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. When, I was, when I was making my first film, I was like so anxious, dude. I was on anxiety. Like my partner, May, were like, dude, seriously, man. Like if you can't do this, don't do it because it's not healthy. And yeah, I'll look at YouTube comments and people were like ripping the movie oh, apart. Oh no, no, yeah, don't and that's do like that. a no, no, dude. But you know, your first, your first movie, you want to do. You're going right? to do it though, yeah. You're going to, yeah, do and it, you yeah. go into IMDb, but it, it becomes really f- apparent when you get people comment on your film, say, "Oh my god, the Beyond is so bad. It's just as bad as Arrival." You're like, uh, thank you. Yeah, and yes. So that's when you yeah. realize there's going to be trolls out there. There's going to be trolls that's going to rip your work, no matter how amazing it is. And people rip Avatar to pieces, right? And yet, it's one of the highest grossing movies ever. But it, it, to yeah. me, that that thing that um, the sociologist, I think she is um, Brene Brown, said it really well. And she said, um, and I'll paraphrase it: If you're not in the arena, I'm putting myself in the arena. And if you're not in there and you're just going to sit in the crowd, I couldn't give a shit what you think. Like, but anyone else that's been in here and fought and got the blood and the sweat and the tears, I'd love to know what you think. Yeah. I I really, I want to talk to you. That's the, and that's the thing I think is that we see you in the arena and we're, you know, we, we want to be in there and we've, we've started to, we're at the edge of it throwing some ideas in there you know we're getting suited up maybe oh sure what do i need sword shield we're getting ready but we're you know we want to we want to come in and do battle one thing i definitely wanted to ask you about is we saw the i'm not going to pronounce it right but we saw the metaverse project pronounce it Uh, yes x mana project right how do you feel about where are you where do you stand with web3 metaverse have you read matthew ball's book of course you know (laughs) Where yeah, where are look, you with it? Here's the thing. You may see, if you, you know, anyone listens to this and you do a bit of Googling, you'll see that, you know, myself and the company has information, we're heavily involved in Web3 projects, okay? But we, we, we do not do crypto, blockchain. I wouldn't know where to start, man. Like, I've got enough headache trying to figure out how to tell a story yeah. and like, do a blockchain crypto. But here's the thing. 
X Mana, this amazing esports company, which is now where partnerships in developing their metaverse for them. How it all came about was they reached out to us and said, hey man, we saw your website. We saw this thing you do on Mutant Year Zero. You did, you're doing all this really cool cinematics. And we love the fact that you're a hardcore gamer and stuff. You know, can you do some cinematics for us? We're like, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a paid gig. You know, we're using Unreal. It keeps our team in, in you know, yeah. going. Why not? And we did it. We did it all in Unreal. We didn't tell them we did it on Unreal. We just said we just did a cinematic trailer. Yeah. They loved it so much. They came back, oh my God, can you do 10 more of these videos for us to show gamification in retail, showing this and that and this. And we're like, cool. Great. <laughs> we'll do the work. But just a quick question. Why are you doing this? And that's why it boils down to the question of why. For everything you do in creative, if you're able to answer the question of why you're doing it, there's no right or wrong. As long as you have a reason of doing it, it's worth doing. Uh, so why are we doing these 10 videos? Like, well, we kind of want to show what Web3 is going to be like. I'm like, that's interesting because you're you're pitching the future of Web3 using Web2, which is video and pictures. So <laughs> 1990s, dude. So, you know, yeah. come on. Right. Yeah. And they're like, that's a funny, that's a really good point. Like, and what would you propose? I'm like, well, first off, we made the trailer in a game engine. So why don't we just prototype it? in a game and see what the experience is instead of showing what web free is how about feel it and that sounds very corny i know at the time it was pretty i was like yeah this is a cool pitch that's the um, best turnaround of a pitch i think i've ever heard of just i'm gonna just take your it. words and i'm gonna just yeah cook them up and feed yeah. them back to you and, and yeah and but they were super cool they're like okay sure you know how much does this take well, it'll be like a month's work we did it we shared it and they're like totally blown away by it and all of a sudden we realized you know this isn't a pivot at all we're taking what we love in cinema, which is storytelling. Yeah. We're taking video game approach to, to immersiveness. We're blending it together to create a new way of telling stories in the Web3 platform. So we went ahead and did. Now we're partnership with that company. That company allows us to grow from like three to four to 12 people. And it all stems down to one thing. We're telling stories regardless of the medium. And Web3 is a medium just like animation is, just like video I, games is. I completely mm. agree with you. I, I, to teach myself Web3, I thought I need to ask people. The only way they'll talk to me is if I tell them I'm doing a podcast. And done one before. <laughs> nice. Used to be a musician, and I thought, okay, that's the way in. So I start. I talked to all these interesting people, including the uh, the, the creative director behind Crypto Kitties, who'd worked oh, yeah. on um, Stoner yeah. Cats, like, like Mac Clavel. <laughs> but in doing that, that really, really changed my understanding of web three you know working web two apps and startups hmm. people have this idea to make money it has this sort of capitalist thing to yeah. it web three really doesn't have that it's a shame yeah. there's all that other shit in there and there's people scamming everybody out of it but yeah it's, it's I, been given a bad name because because people are using crypto in such a bad way but you you're absolutely right it, it really is down to community um we went for a similar thing like that though didn't we back in the 90s when the internet first came out right you know like netscape and stuff like really are we going to really read news on the web seriously that doesn't make any sense and now you know we rely on the internet more than anything right yeah our wi-fi goes down we're like no my google chrome's not loading or safari's not <laughs> yeah. loading oh my god end of the world so i think we're in that stage i think now we're a bit more educated from a technical point of view and social yeah. point of view Whereas people yeah. are now using Web3 in a way that we wish Web2 was done, which is like easy accessible. The fact that I can get my phone and pixel stream and I'm in the metaverse already. I don't need yeah, to have yeah. specific hardware. I don't need to have a special yeah. VR headset or anything. You know, it's literally on my phone. Everyone literally are glued to their phones these days, right? Uh, but most importantly, it's bringing people together. Yeah. The one last thing I want to say is in, in parallel to you, I feel like there's so many parallels between us, <laughs> not just the NPC and the other stuff, but <laughs> what we're trying to do here um 
in another weird parallel, we can't talk about it because it's under NDA, but we've just done a project. Someone pulled us into, a, a Fred and I, into a project and just said, look, I'm doing a thing with a metahuman. Um, there's, there's a little bit of money there. Do you want to just jump into this for a few days and help me out? And we did, and we put so much effort into it that when he finally handed it over to the client, they emailed him and said, you need to get on this on a Google Meet with us, please, now. And he thought, oh, no, 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 this is going to be bad. This is going to be bad. And he got on the call and they didn't say anything. Apparently, they just started clapping. Oh, they wow. all just started clapping. They were, they were like, we are blown away. And we put so much effort into this. Oh, like, that's no, no, the lighting's got to be fully cinematic. It's three Let's days, do this. wasn't it? We did it four days. Four yeah, days. Really? And it, wow. I can't wait for people to see it because it's just... I can't wait to see it. <laughs> what we managed to pull off in four days was was a surprise. There's a possibility now that that will extend. And I was worried until you just hearing you say, actually, the way you looked at it seemed very healthy, which was it's you know, doing that work is keeping you in the engine. It's keeping you doing the, you know, the thing. And it is actually helps you support the team and the studio. Technically too. Like we've learned so much building the metaverse project Rex Manor. Like we're building mini games at the moment. We're learning so much. We're hiring certain people. We're learning stuff about backend infrastructure that I would totally ignore back in the day because I'm a creative. I don't look at that. Now I'm like, oh my God, that has a ripple effect on what I design and what my team designs. Um, and I feel like, oh my God, that like the web free space is probably the perfect blend of creativity and technology fusing together to create something that is culturally appropriate. But most importantly, you're tapping the community. Like for example, NFTs, right? NFTs are like a big thing. I'm like, I'm like, oh, I don't do NFTs. Like, I, don't, I don't understand them, whatever. And this company called Uppercut, which you're going to probably see some press about that I'm going to be doing this week. Like they approached us, hey, you know, and I knew that the guys from the film Hollywood World, they're, hey man, we're doing this with NFT project. I'm like, oh, I don't know, guys, I'm not too rich not really clear about nfts but that's because i wasn't educated i only knew what i saw which is like nfts blockchain people get ripped off blah 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 doesn't make sense whatever it's until i started looking into it i'm like actually dude it's like with anything if you use it right it can be freaking powerful yeah and what, it is, and, it is. right if you use it right if you're just like oh i'm gonna do a thousand variation of images in photoshop and then mint them on open c and then there you go that's nft Nobody make cares. millions yeah. No one gives a shit because that look at Beeple, right? His stuff sold so well because he built like, I don't know, like a decade's worth of, of 12 like years. I think it was 12 it? Yeah. years. So yeah. people would like, would like sell their arm or whatever just to get one of the NFTs because he had built that. It wasn't an overnight success. People think, oh yeah, he just released these, these NFTs. And he made shit. Time. No, like, no. no, everything no. takes time. Whether you're making a movie, whether you're making a, a, a an album, in music, whatever. It takes time and yeah, quality, right? So with the NFT space, we got involved. Um, it was a project called Uppercut, which you can read about. It's all on sites and everything like that. And we end up developing a system in Unreal to generate 3D action fighters out of Unreal into NFTs. It hadn't oh, cool. existed. And yeah. it was a challenge. We're like, you know what? This doesn't exist. Let's give it a shot. And we did. And now we're using the same technology, which we own the tech, by the way. We license it to them. We own the tech. We're using the same technology customization in all our video games because we had practice. Oh, wow. So it yeah, always yeah. Has, a, has a knock-on effect, man, yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's so really clever. So your human project is going to have a knock-on effect. It's going to have a knock-on effect. Gonna have a knock effect. Um, listen, just, to, just to wrap it up, I can't tell you how much how valuable this has been and how grateful <laughs> we are to kind of get this the level of advice from you and seeing someone who's further down the road. is It's an inspiration to see it. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> 
Um, Oscar-credited festival called Sparks Animation Festival in Vancouver is going to be doing the world premiere of Rift. Oh, and, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So if you check out Sparks Animation okay. Festival in Vancouver, there's like Netflix's and all these big guys. You can check out the game on Steam. Check out the game on Steam. Just type in um, Rift. Oh, well, there's quite a lot of Rift there, so we should change the title at some point. But oh, yeah. if you go to my website, hasimation.com, everything's there. on there. You can see yeah. everything on there. I'm usually quite open on social media. So you can find me on LinkedIn. You can cool. find me on Instagram, Hasdazzle, Twitter, H-O-Z underscore Delal. Um, and I post a lot. Just sometimes yeah, I just yeah. some random BTS yeah, behind the scenes stuff. LinkedIn's um, a good place. And maybe just, right. just one last thing. I mean, from there are still students that are, are looking to work at, you know, a, a studio like yours and would really like that sort of sure. boutique experience. You mentioned that it's harder to get in than Harvard. Is <laughs> no, it, that's again, just a rumor. <laughs> for any for any for any artists that are, are interested, is are you are you hiring at the moment? Do you Always. Are you have Always a careers hiring. page? Yeah, definitely like reach out to us. Like I would advise you to look at the stuff we do. Um, we're very open. We we don't we don't really have very specifics when we're looking for artists in general. Um, obviously for developers, you know, having a bit of C helps. Blueprint examples very important. Having an understanding good game logic, what works from a user experience helps. We don't just necessarily look we we kind of expect the technical side. Like you should know how to use Unreal. Obviously, yeah. you should know some blueprinting and, and a bit of C++ if you're a game developer yeah. mind to work in games. But more or less importantly, you know, I'd rather look at a game demo, which is made out of cubes, right? But it's so well done technically. Like right. the simpler, the better. Because, you know, I'm not really particularly interested in seeing this amazing RTX cranked up to a million percent cinematic sequence. I'm like, okay, because that's cool that you know how to crank up your RTX settings and your post-process settings and maybe it took like two days to render on your graphics card. But I'm interested in people making something that looks amazing on very low latency because that is the future of where filmmaking is going. It's real time. So which is why a lot of our artists come from the games industry background or or mod levels again because they're able to make this amazing tree or car out of like, you know, like a few hundred polygons as opposed to trillion of polygons. Yeah. So for me, it's artists that have an optimized mindset that right. knows what looks good. But most importantly, mate, you've got to be passionate about what you do. That's you know, sorry, what's the point? Because it, it it ripples through the studio. Like, you know, we have a stu- we have a Discord channel that we work internally. We use oh, Trello cool. to communicate all the tasks. Right. We don't do the micromanaging. We don't do like meetings every day. You can have a meeting if you want, but I don't encourage that. For me, it's everyone's accountable for their work. And if they're stuck on something, just say, Ask. hey, I can't do this help me we look for artists that are willing to share their knowledge and not be like oh this is my thing i'm not sharing because that's not that's not the hazmation way this is it's great thank you very much indeed (laughs) 